Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. We are in a series that we're calling The Cross-Shaped Life. It's in the book of Mark. If you've been with us, great. If not, I want to catch you up briefly. Uh, we're in chapters 9 and 10, and in 9 and 10, we, we are in this ongoing struggle for the disciples to recognize, meaning the 12 disciples of Jesus, to recognize who he really is. And they keep missing it. They keep missing it because they're slow to hear and slow to see. And um, this morning, we're in this, we're in this section of the book. There's three sections of the book that are separated geographically. And the first section is all up around the Sea of Galilee. The second section is in uh, the journey down to Jerusalem. We're in that section right now. And then the last section of Mark is in Jerusalem, which we'll get to around Easter. But we are in that traveling period, and it's bracketed by a couple of blind men being healed. And it's also a series of announcements that Jesus, or teachings that Jesus gives to his disciples alone, and he tells them, and you will see this in the text, that he's going to die, that he's going to rise again, and they can't hear it, or see it, or understand it. They, they keep doing things that just make you laugh. And so, not really, kind of make you sad at times. But so as I thought over this series, I've been thinking about who, who does that remind me of? Who, does it, who is so dull in their understanding that they can't quite get it? They just don't quite understand. And so a movie came to mind. <clears throat> so I'm gonna, we don't do this very often, but I'm going to show you a clip from a, a movie that was done quite a while ago. And if you haven't seen it, don't watch it. If you have seen it, play along. Go ahead. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. And we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. So guess who the disciples in this story? <laughs> if you've, the, the lack of awareness of what you see in that clip makes me uncomfortable every time I see it. Because he can't see, and he doesn't hear her. All he hears is what he wants to hear. When he went into that conversation, he was like, let there just be a chance. And so he believes the chance rather than the reality. And this is what happens with the disciples over and over and over again. And as we unpack this this morning, we're going to see that 
Changing your mind about something is extraordinarily difficult. I want to ask just a question, and I want to prompt you with this question as we walk through this passage this morning. And the question is this. Um, what would change your mind about something that you believe deeply? What would change your mind about something that you hold very true? And it doesn't have to be something earth-shaking. It could be as simple as, I believe Star Wars is better than Star Trek. Yeah, there's an agreement. See, I could convince you otherwise. That the moon landing was not real. That the world is flat or round. Pepsi is better than Coke. Exercise is good for you. Yeah, I don't know if any of us believe that. And what would it take to change your mind? What would you have to go through to have someone or something change your mind? Is it just facts? Do you just need facts to change your mind? Just give me the facts. Tell them to me straight. Just tell me the way it is, and I'll change my mind. Over the years, I've found this doesn't work. Facts are often ignored and irrelevant. Tell me the truth. Well, I don't believe your truth. Maybe a trusted friend. Maybe a good friend comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I've seen this in, in you, and really, really, Sam, Star Trek is better than Star Wars. But are you willing to shift because of a relationship? Is it just trial and error? I know a lot of people that work on this basis. They keep trying, trying, trying. Well, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Eventually, they change the way they believe or they change their values or they change the way they go about life. And this is the struggle, right? This is the human condition. The human condition is we are conditioned to believe certain things. And once we believe them, it's really hard to move us off of them. And what I'm asking you to do just for a few minutes is, what do I need to do to change my mind about a few things? And this isn't for your spouse. This isn't for the person sitting with you. This is for you. Because all of us, I mean, you could say, yeah, my spouse is really stubborn, never changes their mind. And no, don't look at your spouse right now. I saw that. But there's a, there is something in us that would prefer we deflect it to someone else. So... The problem really is, do I hear and do I see what is right in front of me? So I had to change some of the things about myself as I went through ministry. And early on in my ministry, I had a guy tell me, one, a person I respected, a person I worked with, and a person that was an authority in my life. He mentored me, helped me tremendously, and he told me this. He told me in no uncertain terms, money is the motor that makes ministry happen. And I thought about that and my observations and all that I saw, I adopted that as a belief. And it, it has shaped me and it shaped my ministry and it shaped the way I went about things. And, and so on the other side of that coin was another mentor of mine who told me, whatever you do, don't talk to your church about money very often. Don't talk to them because they'll feel guilty and manipulated. And so now, 
I've got these competing values. I've got these competing truths, which that over the years has borne out to be true as well for me. When you talk about money, people get really nervous. And even if you're trying really hard not to manipulate them, even if you're trying really hard just to explain how the Bible sees money, you still end up in this place where you go, this is awkward. And so you got on one side, money is the motor of ministry. And you're talking to a pastor now. Money is the motor of ministry in this ear. And don't talk to him about money in the other ear. Does that sound like advice to you? Because it squeezes you on both sides. And so how it's changed me as a person is this way. Both of those things are not true, by the way. Both of those things are false. Both of those are things that I had to be convinced are not true. And somebody had to talk to me about it. But in order for that to change in me, what, I, or what happened to me was I became a shrewd money manager. Because I, I had to work with what I got because I wouldn't ask for more. Because money makes the ministry happen and I can't ask for it. And so stuck in that place, I had to find a way out of it, but that is some of the things that we learn in our adulthood that we adopt, and sometimes I still operate in that mode as a person, as a pastor. And the truth is, um, it's affected me in this way. Rather than lean into God in his abundance, I fear the scarcity of man. And when I feel myself doing that, and when I exercise that demon out of me, uh, figuratively, figuratively speaking, those of you in the room that were thinking, I ha no, no demons. But I exercise that, and I realize I need to lean into the abundance of God and stop fearing man. But I find myself there often, especially over the last five years. I've found myself there all the time. And so it is this ongoing exercise for me of remembering the truth. And what you're going to find as you go through the process of change is that there are things that are stuck in your brain that you've learned a long time ago that, that drive your behavior and your feelings and also just how you go about interacting with other people and it affects life. And so to identify those things and then to change them requires something of us. The disciples were learning over this, this journey down to um, Jerusalem that something different was going to happen than what they wanted to have happen. And something that they were convinced wouldn't happen was going to happen. And somehow, some way, they were going to come to grips with that. And the reality is they don't come to grips with it until they see it happen when Jesus is crucified. So, this is the dilemma of the disciples. So, if you brought your Bibles, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 9. I'm just, all that to set this up. It's the section on, it is bracketed by the story of children and the rich man. And so, starting in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, it says, they left that place, see, they're on journey, passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Two things that don't go together. 33, they came to Capernaum, 
when he was in, a, in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He's trying to paint a new picture for them. And they keep missing it. And that picture is, is that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is so different than what you're anticipating. You're missing it. And in that, we see it just in the conversation here. We see the struggle. Up until this point, he's been telling them over and over again, this is going to be different. This is actually the second time that he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem and going to die. And so they still can't quite comprehend what the kingdom is like. You want to know why? Because they had already decided what it was going to be like. They believed something that just wasn't true. Somebody had taught them something when they were young and they were holding on to it, that the Messiah would come and he would liberate Israel in, in a war. And that's where their mind was and they weren't releasing it. One of the questions, you know, that I asked you earlier is what would change your mind? Would you change your mind if God showed up and told you something different? This is the part that's kind of baffling, isn't it? Because God showed up and told them something different. But it wasn't enough to move them to a different belief, understanding. To the point where not only do they not understand, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. When he sets up his earthly kingdom, who gets, to, who gets to run the army? Who gets to sit at his right hand? Who gets to judge? Who gets to do the things? Who's going to be the greatest? And their, their mind is so stuck in the way that the world works. They only understand it from the perspective, and I get this, they only understand it from the perspective of which they were taught. And so how they were taught moves them to a place where they go, well, this can't be right, because what we understood was this. Could all these people be wrong? Could everyone who has told us about how the kingdom was going to come about be wrong? And the answer to that question over and over and over again is, no way. But Jesus is telling us something else. But we'll fix Jesus. That's what they keep trying to do. They keep trying to get Jesus on their side. And we heard that a couple weeks ago when, when uh, uh, maybe it was last week doesn't matter. When Peter rebukes Jesus, when he says he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, there's this, there's a, a force that's trying to move Jesus off the path. They're trying to move him away from what he's actually trying to accomplish. And this, this is such a pattern of Christians, it's such a pattern of mine, is that if I could just get Jesus onto my path, get over here, this would be a whole lot easier because you could bless my direction. And that is so presumptuous. And this is where it takes us into this next part of the conversation. It's not just that they were arguing, it was that he takes a child, puts it in the middle of, their, of them in this teaching, and he says, be like a child. 
And that was offensive. Not only was it offensive, it was like, what are you talking about? Again, the mystery of this to them was missed. We get to look at it and go, oh, I get it. I'm not sure we get it. Because we all live as adults in a world that is very adult-driven with all that happens as adults. We just heard this conversation about children and about how it creates wonder and mystery. But in this culture, at this time, children were merely, not even merely, they were non-issues. They were, um, they were the least of these. Children were financial liabilities. They had no social standing whatsoever. They were naive. They were unaware. See, and that's what Jesus was driving at when he said, this is, takes this child, he puts it among them, and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Okay, so the story goes on. It just gets a little more crazy because the next chapter, in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, 13 through 31, he says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Come on. It was just the previous chapter. We're in the same story. We're moving through this. We're traveling down to Jerusalem. Jesus just put a child in their midst and said, we must be like them. And what do the disciples do? They look and they see and they hear and they're dull. And they were rebuking the children. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now, if you can read indignant here as being very frustrated understanding that he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed, them, placed his hands on them and he blessed them. Do you hear this? Do you see this? The ones with nothing the ones with no social standing, the one with no leverage, the one with no ability to be able to affect change are the ones that are entering into the kingdom of heaven. Again, the disciples don't get it because they have this preconceived idea. This is where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem, not for Jesus to die, even though he's told us twice that's what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. What good are children when you're setting up a kingdom and going to fight a war? Unless there's something very different going on. And to enter into this, he took the children and his place in his arms, he blessed them, and he says, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child to enter it. So there's, there's a sense of where the naiveness helps the child not have a preconceived idea of where they're going and who Jesus is and what the kingdom would be like. There's less to unlearn as a child. He's talking about a place where everyone has access to the king. He's talking about the marginalized. He's talking about the discounted. But the story continues. He says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
I want to contrast this verse real quick with another verse, verse 13. This is, this is where, uh, I know that's small print. If you can't read it, I'm going to read it again. It says, people were bringing, this is the beginning of this story. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands in them, but the disciples rebuked them. And then 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the difference? No one hinders this guy. No one stops him from coming up to Jesus. Nobody thinks that this is something that they should stop, but they stop the children. This is the contrast, right? The contrast is, is that that one has approachability. He has standing. He's someone that should be allowed to approach the king where the children are to be dismissed. Something's amiss in the mind of the disciples. There are those that are worthy and those that are not. And this comes clearer as this story plays out. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked a good question. The assumption was that I have, the assumption of the, this man that comes up, he says, I have what I need. What, what needs to be completed? There's a, there's a sharp, sharp contrast here between him and the children because he's come to a conclusion that he knows. The children are like, hey, this is Jesus. And so Jesus asks him a question. I love the question. He says, why do you call me good? And we all kind of blow through this story. You've heard this story probably more times than you care to. But the story reveals something about the man and about Jesus. Generally speaking, what's happening here is, is that this man who comes up and falls on his knees and asks the question, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was looking for an affirmation of what he already knew. Do you ever do that? I do that. When I come into, I already know the answer to this question. But there's something implied with the question, or something implied by him calling him good teacher. And Jesus sees through it. He says, no one is good except God alone. I know the commandments. You know the commandments, he says to him. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You not, shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And all of these commandments, if you go back and look at them, are about relationship with people. So it's about hospitality. It's about treating people right. And part of, part of the idea behind calling Jesus good was he was trying to flatter the teacher. It was the quintessential walking into the room and, and putting an apple on the teacher's desk. Look at me favorably. I'm calling you good. It's a, a way to manipulate the teacher. And Jesus goes, no one's good except God alone. And he asks him these questions and he realizes, he says in verse 20, teacher, he declared, like it's like, hey, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And again, as this is written, you see the contrast between the adult and the child. The contrast between the man and the boy. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is a very unique invitation. 
And oftentimes we read into this, well, I should sell everything and go follow Jesus. Not everybody's called to that. That isn't the invitation that Jesus gives everybody. He gave it to very few, actually. Gave it to his 12, and he gives it to this guy. But that's about it. And so if you're hearing in this, oh, Kevin's going to say, I need to sell everything and go. I'm not, that's not what this is about. This is about an, a specific invitation to a specific person whom he invites to a very specific thing. The invitation is this. You see the, the men behind me, you see the 12, you see me, we've left everything and we're on this journey. We're on this journey to the cross. We're on this journey to Jerusalem. And if you wanna join us, you gotta kinda do what we did. Leave it behind and let's go. It's an extraordinary invitation. How do you say no to Jesus, right? How at that moment do you go, hmm? And verse 22 tells us, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He actually couldn't do what was asked of him. It was unique. It was an invitation. It was an invitation to meander their way down to Jerusalem. It was an invitation into um, all that the other disciples were experiencing, walking with Jesus. And so Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, keyword, how hard is it, it is to enter the kingdom of God. He looked at his 12, and we can see the contrast between the man and the child. And Jesus says, calls them children, because they left everything. They did what the rich man wouldn't do. They joined with him in this journey, and they, they, they didn't stop short. They're in this, and he calls them children. They're a little dense, but he calls them children because he now identifies them with the child, with the children that he's shooing them away. And you begin to see the depth of the contrast that Mark is painting for us that the disciples just can't get their head around. He calls his disciples children. Verse 25, and then he goes on to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Because their understanding still is stuck in the worldly understanding of who has and who has not and how things work and how you rich people are able to get what nobody else can get and how rich people have the upper hand and how all the things that revolve around them in that world and how the world works is at the disposal of those people that have more than they do. 
And they just figured it worked that way with God because God blessed them to be in that position. And Jesus keeps telling them it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. And so for me, as a human being, to understand that it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God, in a world that works totally different, where power works, where leverage works, where my status works, where my authority works, where my money works, where my wealth works, where my influence, my platform, fill in the blank, whatever it is, it works to move people in directions we want them to, and it allows me to build my own status. We work in a world like that, and Jesus says, the kingdom doesn't work that way. And I want to invite you into something totally different. Come follow me. And the disciples are like, and they look at him and go, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other who then can be saved. If it doesn't work the way the world works, how does this work? Right question. Right question. Perfect question. How does this work? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things with God are possible. The impossible is realized when we are, we are able to hear and listen that the way of getting ahead in the kingdom of God is not what we think it is. You can't buy your way in although we sometimes live as though we can. We can't buy our way in. We can't manipulate God. This is what the rich man was trying to do. You can't pay him off. Can't push him around or intimidate him. The usual way of dealing with people just doesn't work in the kingdom of God. The people with all the perceived power doesn't have any extra power in the kingdom of God. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up. He's starting to get it a little bit. <laughs> we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Here's the kicker. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so we begin to see the culture of the kingdom of God. We begin to understand a little more richly, a little more deeply. Peter begins to understand, we've left everything to follow you. Yeah, that was the invitation to the rich man. He had to leave that behind and come follow me. And so there's this tension of this is what I believe is true versus this is what Jesus is telling me. This is how the world works and this is how the kingdom works. And I stand in a place of trying to figure out how do I now enter into that kingdom and forgo what I know. I asked you at the beginning, what would it take to convince you to change your mind about something? What would it take for you to change something that you hold so true? 
And therein lies the problem for the disciples. Therein lies our problem. It, it doesn't take a genius to look around and look at the church in, in America and around the world and go, wow, we've bought into a lot of the, the worldly way of doing things. We've, we've bought into power. We've bought into platforms. We've bought into size. We've bought into a lot of those things. We, we've somehow, somewhere along the way, I am guilty of this in my past, and I'm guilty of it even today because I still worry about can we make this work? Does it, you know, there is a, a sense of where that stuck in my mind. Money, makes, money is the motor that makes ministry work. And I have to continually surrender that because that is the way of this world that tells me money is more important than it actually is. So the question becomes, what are the threats to, for us to following Jesus where he wants us to go? What threatens us? What, what makes it hard for us to hear? What is your biggest concern about following Jesus? One thing I've wrestled with is I believe sometimes I know where Jesus wants to take me. And so believing that I try to manipulate Jesus into taking me there. That's what the disciples are doing. They think they know where Jesus is supposed to go. And they cease following and they start leading. Following puts us in a submissive position to a God who says, you know what? The greatest among you is the servant. The greatest of you among you. Greatness does exist in the kingdom of God. Greatness exists in the kingdom of God. It's just not measured the same way. Jesus was the greatest servant of all. How would we expect if we were gonna follow the greatest servant of all that we wouldn't be called to be servants. Because we've been taught otherwise. Because we believe something different. Because we don't want to be servants. They didn't want to go to Jerusalem and see Jesus die. They wanted to go to Jerusalem and set up an earthly kingdom. Which their behavior just repeatedly tells us over and over again. Being a servant is something that is, is learned. And it's also something that is stirred in us by Jesus. And the invitation is to the kingdom of God. The first will be last, and the greatest among you will be a servant. That's just counterintuitive, right? It just doesn't seem like the best way to go. It actually seems like a very difficult path that hopefully will bring blessing. I want to share with you a quote from Timothy Gombas. It's going to be on the, and then I'll take any questions you have. Timothy Gombas. The typical human methods of getting things done and advancing a cause involving, involve pleasing people, 
manipulating situations, granting favors, exercising strength, asserting power, using shrewdness, and good business sense, and perhaps even employing some shady means. But with God, none of this accomplishes anything. God cannot be pushed around, manipulated, paid off, impressed, or intimidated. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that's true? All right, I spoke for a long time there. Um, did it prompt any questions? Or did I suck the air out of the room? We have a question over here. Uh, <laughs> what's that? We have a couple online? Okay. We have about a few minutes. Go ahead. Do you think that the rich man asking for eternal life, because that's not a very commonly asked question to Jesus. Right. More people are asking for healing. Yeah. Is he asking this question because he's like us and we have our needs met? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And yes, I believe it has to do more with there was a, probably an aching kind of question in him, have I done enough? And so he, he was prompted to ask. And he was, his, his aching probably left him sad. That's why he walks away sad. As much as it was, he couldn't do what he was asked. Yeah, that's a great question. There's one online that's along with that part of the story. Okay. Um, you said Jesus only asked a handful of people to leave their lives behind and to follow him and that today we shouldn't just sell or give away everything. Based on that, how is Jesus calling us to follow him in today's society where we cannot sell and leave everything behind? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that that's a universal truth that you can't sell everything and leave it behind. I think you can. Um, but I don't think he's asking most of us to do that. I think the, the underlying question, this goes back a little bit to some of the questions we answered on the, on the podcast is, um, what exactly do I have to give up to follow Jesus? And I think in that, um, the realm of money, we get caught in um, making it really the focal point of our lives. It's our security. It moves us into places. So I would say he's inviting us into holding all of those things loosely, entering into the kingdom of God in such a way that we enter into it with our hands open that the stuff of this world is, is disposable. Am I willing to give it away? Am I willing to let my stuff be used? Am I willing to allow for my resources to be um, available for the use in the kingdom of God? If I'm not, if I, and that's, that's really the question. If I enter into the kingdom of God with the idea that my money and my authority and my platform and all those, position, those things that I have in this life are a means by which I can get ahead in the kingdom or leverage those things, I move to a place where I no longer understand what the kingdom is, and I've actually moved myself out of the kingdom back into a place of influence by means which was never intended in the kingdom of God.
I was always under the impression that that, that verse particular pertained to the heart and it was a question of the heart and whether or not uh, that rich man was willing to give his heart up for the Lord or whether he held on to something. Um, what's your feelings on that? The heart, um, I'll re just so I get you, previously, the t you were taught that it was more about him giving his heart over, not necessarily his finances over. Is that how you kind of, or is it just juxtaposed? Well, that, that Jesus knew this man's heart. Sure. And, and by knowing his heart, he knew that those valuables were more important to him than, than the actual mm -hmm. kingdom, and it was right. a question of the heart. Yeah. And it's, it, yes, there was a question of heart. And there was a question also, this is, this is the way Mark wrote it, in particular to, to put it in a way that um, put it opposed to the child. And so the rich man is representing, in many ways, the disciples in this case. And, and they're starting to realize, okay, we did enter into this like children. We left everything. And so the invitation to this guy is more than a heart thing. It is a follow me thing. And so it's abandon this and come follow me. And, and the, the tension becomes he's asking him actually to do something based upon his profession uh, of, of who Jesus is. And he just can't. And so there is this, um, again, the lesson underneath it is the juxtaposition between the child and the man. And the the willingness of a child to follow versus the resistance of somebody who is rooted in, in what they already have and have to unlearn to follow. It's a heart issue, it's a mind issue, it's a belief issue, it's an idol issue, it's a money issue. The list is really long. This guy was steeped into the culture of the day in such a way that he couldn't release it because he had learned that this is what is most valuable, this is not. It's the same problem the disciples were having with the children. They couldn't quite understand why children were valuable in the kingdom of God. He probably had the same problem. And so to release all those preconceived ideas, it manifests itself in his great wealth. But to release that, not only is he giving up his wealth, he's giving up his platform, he's giving up his privilege, he's giving up his power, he's giving up all those things. And so yes, heart issue, value issue, mind issue, um, and it, it was too much to ask to follow Jesus. That's a great question, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so I asked for clarity on this one, so I'm just going to read all of it. <laughs> okay. um, what was the status of someone relegated to take care of a baby and clean up their poop and pee and feed them and deal with their crying? So did the least respected disciple end up taking care of the child? And then I, this is where I asked for clarity. <laughs> um, and then they said, Jesus placed a small child among them to be taken care of. Was he testing them? Was he seeing how they treated the child? Or was he seeing who was given the lowest job of cleaning, feeding, and soothing the child? The job of the woman or the lowest servant? So was there more to the lesson about that the person most respected is not the one that understands, but the one given the lowest job of taking care of a child. Okay. Uh, 
I think they read a lot into that. Um, I think maybe they're, I don't, I don't know if maybe it's like, is, are they saying that a woman's job is the worst? Maybe. <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, caring for the child wasn't necessarily the issue, as it was the idea that the child represented something of innocence and naiveness and, and unable to care for him or herself, unable to um, fully grasp what they were committing to. Children, if you sit and watch children for five minutes, you begin to recognize, especially little ones, their guile, their willingness to ask any question. These guys wouldn't ask questions. There's, there's, if, if they feel comfortable, if they're part of that and they're valued in that, they will, anybody experience this with, as parents? Um, you, you take your child somewhere and say, be on your best behavior. And they are. Like you leave them with somebody and they're like, oh, your kids were great. Then why can't you be like that at home? There is this, there is, and part of that is the familiarity with Papa and Mama. It's the familiarity of safety. It is the familiarity of being able to feel safe in an environment that allows them to do and be and ask and be in an environment that allows them to grow and be curious and wonder. And when you put them in a different environment, they don't know. They don't know how that environment will treat them in their naiveness. And so what you find is they'll follow rules in another environment because they don't want to get in trouble of the person who is charged over them. But you put them in an environment where they are familiar, they are valued, and they will act up. This is the, okay, and where I'm going with this is this. The kingdom of God is the familiar place. It is the place where they are valued and cherished and loved. And they are seen as children to be nourished, nourished and, and moved. And so that's, that's the object point of the child. It isn't necessarily to get, it is to get them to identify with the child, not care for the child. That's the difference. That's a long answer to a very easy question. All right, uh, one more, and then we'll, we'll call it a whatever this is. So if you guys want to come up. That question that you guys just talked about. Being a care, what's that? Okay. Being a caretaker, I can relate and identify with Jesus when he says I'm indignant. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so I'm listening to that question and recognizing my own indignancy, or is that even a word? Um, and I just lost my train of thought because my kids are with me. And that's okay. Um, just lost my train of thought. My question is, oh, my response to that question was, it doesn't really matter what your calling is, what role you're given, what, who, who of the disciples is to care for the children. Mm -hmm. It is what role you play and how you deal with your indignancy. So if you draw near to God in mm -hmm. whatever role yeah. you're given. So I'm given the role of the caretaker in my yeah. family, whatever. I'm indignant. I draw near to God. And I think that is, at least in my situation, that is backwards from what I think the culture tells us to do. For sure. So it just hinting on that, drawing near to God in that situation. Yes. And that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the caretaker. And the, and the one with the, everything are equal in the kingdom of God. And so I want to invite you into this next, we're going to sing three songs and 
Uh, we have stations around the room if you're new with us. And those stations, you can write down a prayer request. Um, if you are, um, we've found that there are some prayer requests that we would like to respond to. We keep them relatively private, um, but if you would like us to contact you, would you please put your name or your uh, contact information, even an email, so we can get back to you? Because there are some we just want to lean into and help. Um, if not, that's fine. Most of them are anonymous, and that's great. You take a piece of paper and write it down. You can take communion. You can go to the table, take a piece of bread, a cup, and uh, you can take it back to your seat. You can stand. We've got enough space over there. You can also give as a response to this. And Lord, we just uh, now come to you and uh, this time of worship. As we look to you and truly want to join you in the kingdom of God, may we find ourselves laying down our pride, laying down those things that hinder us and keep us from really following you. May we not find ourselves trying to manipulate you. May we find ourselves just following, paying attention, and letting go of that which we think is true for what is true. In Jesus' name, amen.